Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health or on policy. This episode was recorded on October 14th, 2019. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. This episode was recorded at our recent conference about getting real about healthcare for all, sponsored by the Hall Center for Law and Health and the Indiana Health Law Review. One of the standout panels at the conference asked the question, can we make healthcare inclusive? Our presenters featured on the pod today discussed healthcare for all through four frames. Those along the capacity spectrum, members of the LGBTQ communities, those suffering from mental health or substance use disorders, and those requiring home or facility-based long-term care. In order of the presentations, we heard from Melissa Keyes, Heather Walter-McCabe, Stacey Tavino, and Rakaya Yearby. I will provide a brief introduction before each of their talks. And of course, as always, the show notes will have links to their full bios. First up, then, was Melissa Keyes, the Legal Director for Indiana Disability Rights, the state's protection and advocacy agency, which provides legal services to individuals with disabilities. Melissa received her law degree from Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law, where she was the editor-in-chief of the Indiana Health Law Review. During law school, Melissa served as a research and policy consultant to the Autism Society of Indiana. Before becoming an attorney, Melissa worked at Riley Hospital for Children in Indianapolis in the Autism Clinic, at which time she earned her master's degree in clinical psychology. This is my friend Diana. She is 70 years old. She is diagnosed with schizophrenia. She lives alone. She's retired. She does not work, right? Uh, Her adult son, Greg, helps her around the house, helps her if anything major comes up. Uh, Diana slipped on some wet tile a few weeks ago. She's having terrible knee pain. Uh, So Greg goes with Diana to an orthopedic doctor's office to get it looked at. The doctor says Diana has a tear. Uh, in her knee, and the treatment is either steroid shots and regular physical therapy or surgery. Uh, Neither option sounds desirable to Diana. It's causing her a great deal of anxiety, and um, because of her diagnosis, because of her age, um, possibly her behavior in the office, the presence of her son as a caregiver in the room, the doctor begins to question her ability to consent to a certain course of treatment. And that's where we start our our talk about today. So Diana's scenario is not uncommon. Many adult guardianships start as a means to obtain treatment or admission to a facility in order to receive health care. While guardianship is absolutely a necessary tool for those who need that level of intervention, there are much less restrictive ways for us to help preserve a person's self-determination and independence when it comes to health care decision making. And there are many factors that contribute to this problem. One is a misunderstanding of capacity, what it means, how it's determined, and the factors that go into determining whether or not somebody has capacity to make a health care decision. This can also be influenced by implicit bias about the capabilities of people with disabilities, simply based on their diagnosis or on the presence of a caregiver. Another factor is not knowing how to accommodate that doctor-patient relationship or to help accommodate the informed decision-making process in the medical context. And often when people with disabilities bring caregivers with them, whether to assist them functionally or uh, in the decision-making process, healthcare providers may default to speaking to the caregiver uh, instead of the person. A healthcare provider should not question the capacity of a person with a disability to make a healthcare decision solely because the person brings somebody with them to help support them during a meeting. And supported decision-making, which we'll touch on today, in fact exists to enable a person with a disability to avoid a guardianship merely as a means to receive medical treatment 
and help them to retain full decision-making capacity in the context of healthcare. And finally, there's a misunderstanding of what decision-making supports are available and out there, with very limited exceptions. There are no services, supports, entitlements, programs that require someone to be under guardianship in order to access them. Now, don't get me wrong, guardianship, again, it's a very necessary tool for those who need it, but for those who are just getting guardianship in order to participate in a loved one's life or get access to care or treatment, there are much less intrusive ways in order to help preserve a person's self-determination and independence in making those decisions. So our goal here is to make sure that everyone has an opportunity to participate in the decision-making process and to lead the decisions about their life to the greatest extent possible and in the least restrictive manner. And I want to talk briefly about this issue of capacity because capacity ends up being that fulcrum point, that turning point where we decide whether or not somebody has the ability to make a decision about their health care or not. And one of the things to, to keep in mind about capacity is it's not a yes or a no. It's not on this side I have capacity and I cross this magic line and all of a sudden I don't have it. Uh, capacity exists on a spectrum. And whether someone has capacity, it's determined by the situation, by the complexity of the issue that they're being presented with, as well as some internal and external factors. It could be time of day. It could be their physiological state. For anyone who's ever gone grocery shopping hungry, that's how you end up eating cake for dinner, right? We've all been there. And timing of day can also be really important. Are there morning people in here? Yeah, I will never understand morning people. You talk to me before 8 a.m., you're going to get a much different response, probably a more profane-laden response, than if you talk to me at 10 o'clock at night when my staff can attest 90% of my emails go out to them. And it also relates to the person. Their alertness may change based on medication that they've taken. Their medication may make them more alert. Their medication may make them drowsy. So talking to them about making healthcare decisions or making certain types of decisions may vary based on whether or not they're currently experiencing active symptomatology from their conditions. There's all of these different factors that go into whether or not somebody has the ability to make a decision and and have input on the course of their medical treatment. Capacity can also change over time based on skill acquisition. The more you learn or practice a particular skill, the better you're at it. And the same is true for decision making. It's It's a muscle that can be flexed and trained just like anything else. And here's kind of an example. So I have a driver's license, right? So this means the state of Indiana has said I have the basic capacity to drive a car. Uh, I can do that hopefully safely without killing myself or somebody else. But in order to prove that basic capacity, I didn't need to drive like Danica Patrick around the Indy 500. I didn't need to rebuild a transmission uh, or know even what happens when the little engine light goes on in my car. I just needed to meet that basic uh, level understanding of what it means to drive a car safely. Now, my husband would probably disagree with me, but for the most part, my driving skills have gotten better since I was 16. And not only that, uh, in addition to practice, there's also been a lot of advances in technology. My car beeps at me an alarming amount when I start to drift out of a lane. There's cars that will parallel park. There's, you know, mirrors that will show up and and, and tell you if you're going to hit something. There's all kinds of technology that also goes in to helping you be a more capable driver, right? But even still, even with the increase in skill and time, the increase in technology, my ability to drive fluctuates. Driving late at night, in the rain, my kids are screaming in the back asking for a snack. It's much different than Sunday afternoon, it's sunny, I'm driving to Target, Beyonce's on the radio, I'm living my best life. And so, but the state of Indiana hasn't said you can only drive on Sundays going to Target, Beyonce's on the radio. I would love it if they did that, that would make my life a lot more fun. But they have assumed that I'm going to take all of this information in and I'm going to take all of these different factors 
factors in con- into consideration when I'm going out and I, so I can still maintain my safety when I'm driving. It's presumed that I'm going to look for other information, other input, other sources to help me when something is outside my wheelhouse, like going to a mechanic or embarrassingly having my husband change my tire pressure. See, this is about how much I know about cars. So the point is that when we talk about capacity, we really need to think of it as a spectrum, as a fluctuating concept that can be changed, it can be improved, it can be modified, and all of these different things that go into determining whether somebody has a capacity. It is not based on a diagnosis. Merely coming into a doctor's office with a diagnosis of schizophrenia or autism spectrum disorder does not automatically mean that that person is incapable of making a decision about their health care. For those of you who, like me, are, are visual learners, this is what I call the spectrum of assistance. Just to orient you, the green categories are things that people can do very regularly, very easily, without much influence. Um, the yellow categories are things that should be done in consultation with a professional who knows how to draft them in accordance with the law and the person's wishes. Things in the red category are things that require court intervention to uh, to get set up. Starting with kind of the least restrictive, these are things like independence or interdependence, as well as how to support somebody with informal supports. These are ways to help fill the gaps in someone's needs. So for example, someone who has a hard time um, remembering to take medication, there's smart medication dispensers, there's services that will now deliver prepackaged, labeled medications to help somebody be independent in their medication delivery. There's all kinds of services that will help uh, deliver groceries to make sure somebody's getting the nutrition that they need. The sky's the limit, and it's really you know about being creative with it. One of the things that I'm really excited to talk about is something called supported decision-making. And Indiana just passed a law formally recognizing supported decision-making as a less restrictive alternative to guardianship, as a way to help promote somebody's self-determination and independence. Part of that law includes a definition of, of supported decision-making that says that it refers to the process of supporting and accommodating an adult in the decision-making process to make or communicate and effectuate life decisions without impeding that adult's self-determination. This definition is based on similar definitions used by the National Resource Center for Supported Decision-Making, as well as uh, other states like Massachusetts, Maryland, Texas, and Wisconsin. But so what does this mean in plain language? In its most basic understanding, supported decision-making is a way to accommodate that decision-making process. Everybody here is familiar with wheelchairs. It's a way to accommodate somebody who has a a mobility deficit, where they need something to help support them, to help them navigate their world. Supported decision-making is no different. It's a way to accommodate the decision-making process that we all go through. In supported decision-making, people who need support uh, choose appropriately named supporters. These are generally trusted friends, family members, former caregivers or current caregivers, anybody that they have identified as a trusted person to help support them in the decision that they're trying to make. So with supported decision-making, the person retains all decision-making authority. And this is different from things like powers of attorney or healthcare representative where that task can be delegated to someone else. The person retains the right to make the decision themselves. It's a way to increase empowerment. It's a way to assert self-determination for those who might need a little bit of assistance with that decision-making process. The formalization of it generally means writing down that person's plan into a document called a supported decision-making agreement. That arrangement, they can be changed over time. They don't require a court to uh, get approved. They can be very flexible to address a a number of different areas. And here's kind of an example of of supported decision-making, because I think you'll all realize that we all use it a lot more than we think. So the other day, 
My husband let me know that he and some of his friends from the neighborhood were going to start a bike gang, not motorcycles. That would have been too cool. It was actual, you know, bicycles. And he asked me, should I wear a helmet? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, no brainer, no pun intended. The risk of looking dumb in front of your friends versus a traumatic brain injury when you're the parent of two small children, you know, duh, you should wear a helmet. We talked about it. I gave him the I told you so. But ultimately, he was able to make the what I consider to be an incorrect choice to not wear a helmet. The police didn't come and say, you're not allowed to ride your bike. Nobody came and said, you're making an unhealthy decision, an unwise decision, so somebody's going to get guardianship to make decisions for you because clearly you can't do that. No. As an adult, he was empowered and supported in in making a decision, whether it's a right decision or a wrong decision. And that's the beauty of self-determination and decision-making, right? We all get the ability, we all get the opportunity to have input on our life, whether it's good or bad. And and we all have the right to deal with the I told you so's and the the consequences. Um, And that's the cool thing about supported decision-making. It's what a lot of us do already. It's how most of us make major and sometimes even minor decisions. Now, obviously, riding a bike without a helmet, it's not the same as whether or not to make uh, uh, you know, potentially life-saving medical treatment, but no matter what that decision is or how much support a person needs that, or the type of support they need, it's much better to support someone to make the decision themselves instead of making a decision for them. Um, so next are uh, agency agreements. Those are things like powers of attorney, healthcare representative forms, and that's ways to delegate decision-making authority when you have the capacity to do so. Those can be very flexible. They're, they're really good to have just as part of general future uh, advanced planning. And then and touching briefly, guardianships and other court-initiated options, those are obviously also available. There's a lot of different types. The one thing to know about the guardianship and anything involving a court is that uh, they are very time and resource intensive. They can be very delayed in getting them set up. And they are also extremely difficult to terminate if that level is no longer needed. So if you are just getting guardianship over someone to get them into or out of a facility, and once that happens, they're still under that guardianship. And to get out from under that guardianship takes a tremendous amount of resource. So if we go back to our example of Diana and her her son, Greg, so under supported decision-making, if Diane had her son as a supporter, um, she would be able to use the support in a way that, that she wants. So it could be help explain things that the doctor's saying in a way that I can understand. Help recognize when you see that I'm getting overstimulated and need to take a break. It helped me advocate and communicate my choice to my doctor so that he respects what I have to say. And so that process that could be written down in her supported decision-making agreement that would allow the doctor to better understand how she made that decision and recognize her use of her son as a support as a valid way for her to demonstrate medical informed consent. Under a power of attorney, if Diane had, you know, uh, named her son as an attorney in fact, the doctor could look to Greg to make that decision on her behalf. If Diane did not like the way that Greg made that decision, she could revoke it. She could, you know, uh, get rid of the, the power of attorney document altogether. And then under guardianship, obviously, if Greg had been appointed guardian, the doctor would look exclusively to Greg um, to make a decision about what treatment to do. Supported decision making, I make the decision myself using the supports that I need. Power of attorney is I appoint someone else to make decisions for me. And and, uh, guardianship is a court has appointed someone to make decisions for me. And you can see how that differentiates this self-determination and independence that's allowed uh, in in medical decision making. So really quick, how do you guys fit in? Making sure that you're talking to clients about what options are available. Pushing back when you hear that guardianship is the only option, especially if it's just being used to help get access 
access to treatment and it's not the level that's actually necessary. And then making sure that you are encouraging meaningful skill development in uh, encouraging opportunities for decision making and then referring to resources. I'm going to do a plug for my website, indianasdm.org. Um, we have a ton of resources on uh, independence and self-determination, some specifically directed to healthcare. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Heather Walter McCabe. She practiced social work at Riley Hospital for Children before matriculating uh, at Indiana University's Robert H. McKinney School of Law. She also holds a BA in psychology and English from Indiana University Bloomington, an MSW from Indiana University School of Social Work. She has a secondary appointment as assistant professor of social work and law at our law school and also serves as adjunct professor at the Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health. After graduation from law school, she was executive director of the Indiana Partnership to Prevent Violent Injury and Death. In 2009, she joined the faculty of the Indiana University School of Social Work, a primary areas of interest to public health law, violent injury prevention research, and work with children with developmental disabilities and or medical fragility. I'm going to be talking today about um, LGBTQ discrimination and health disparities, and really looking at some ways we can think about policy and how that interacts with what we're seeing with some of these health disparities. I want to make sure we're all starting with a kind of a common database of, um, of what, what we mean. Um, so LGBTQ is generally what I use. NIH is generally talking um, about this population um, with sexual and gender minorities. You may hear some people say SOGI, sexual orientation and gender identity. Before today, I'll likely be using the term LGBTQ unless I'm talking about a one specific portion of this community. So lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. The Q can be for queer or questioning, um, depending on who you're speaking with. Intersex and asexual. Use the gender unicorn because it tends to be what folks in the field are using today and also has been used in some schools with varying effects on parents' thoughts about that. But understanding that gender identity, gender expression, and sex assigned at birth is important, particularly as we're talking about folks um, on the transgender, um, hate to use the term spectrum, but you sometimes will hear that that used. And you can be talking about physical attraction. You can be talking about emotional attraction. Um, so this group is actually a fairly large group. And when we talk about them as one, it conflates a lot of issues. And so I just want to be clear that we're talking about a wide variety of people. Additionally, um, what I don't get into today is the intersectionality that often occurs. So keep in mind that if you're doing research in this group, it's important to understand that a lot of people in this group um, share other, other areas of intersection that might impact um, their health outcomes. Why are we talking about this? Well, there's a lot of risk factors for the LGBTQ community. LGBTQ youth are two to three times more likely to attempt suicide than their non-LGBTQ peers. The youth are more likely to be homeless. Lesbians are less likely to get preventative cancer treatments than uh, than those who, who are not lesbians. Gay men are uh, higher risk for STDs and HIV, especially among uh, communities of color. Lesbian and bisexual females are more likely to be obese or overweight. Transgender individuals have higher prevalence of mental health and um, issues in HIV. Elderly LGBTQ individuals
individuals have additional barriers to health because of isolation and lack of social services that are culturally competent. So the, uh, the LGBTQ population also has um, a high risk, a higher risk than um, the general population of alcohol, tobacco, and other drug use. Um, if we look at specifically at the transgender community, which I do because we're seeing a lot of policy right now specifically impacting this population. Nearly half of the respondents in a recent transgender survey respond that they were verbally harassed in the past year because of being transgender. One in 10 respondents were physically attacked in the past year for uh, being transgender, and 12% reported being verbally harassed, physically attacked, or sexually assaulted while accessing a bathroom. Transgender individuals are at increased risk for mental health issues, 39% of respondents in the latest transgender survey experienced psychological distress in the month prior to the survey, um, compared with only 5% of the general population. And 40% of respondents had attempted suicide in their lifetime, nearly nine times that of the general population. We are seeing particularly trans women of color, and more particularly trans women who are black, experiencing violence at an alarming rate. Just this year, 20 black trans women have been killed in a violent means just since the beginning of the year. So as we're talking about this group, um, sometimes I find that people aren't necessarily well-versed in what those disparities are, um, but I do talk about these specifically to transgender individuals because it is um, somewhat alarming. The last fact that I'll give is one that even as I started doing this research and had some familiarity with this, but it surprised me, is 8% of transgender individuals actually were reporting urinary tract infections and kidney um, infections and other kidney-related problems in the last year, generally seen as a result of holding it, um, choosing not to go to the restroom while they're in public because of the safety concerns. And so I think that if we're talking about health disparities, it's important to understand those things that may not necessarily come up on our radar initially, um, but but it's, it's another reason to think about how much work we need to do in getting data. Access um, concerns go from outright refusal of services or to touch um, a patient to other subtle language type of concerns. And it's clear that fear of mistreatment is also driving how often and the ways that people are seeking care. And the health-seeking behaviors, as we know, um, does in fact um, impact health outcomes when people aren't accessing the health that they need. So Healthy People 2020, I bring up because I I'm happy to report that this is the year that the LGBTQ community was included in the Healthy People plans for the first time. Not happy that it was the first time, but happy that it's there now. A major emphasis of the Healthy People 2020 plan looking at the LGBTQ community has been on data collection. We know we don't have the data to really make some of the changes that we need to make. And so the goals for the next this plan have been about getting language added to surveys and to data collection implementation. Policy implications are what I'm going to mainly be focusing on today relatively quickly, but before we do that, I want to just bring up, it's not uh, just not unsimilar to other areas where we're seeing some health disparities. Minority stress theory is a well-researched area in LGBTQ health. The prejudice and stigma towards pe people in the community bring about unique stressors. These unique stressors not only ad adversely affect their health-seeking behaviors and their access to health, but can actually impact their physical and mental health directly. Again, for this 
this uh, audience that may not be new, but I think it's something to think about as we think about what policies we're going to examine. As an example of this, I talk about the bathroom bills. If we look at how many bathroom bills are actually in existence at this point, we've had states attempt uh, to pass legislation similar to House Bill 2 from, from North Carolina that was ultimately repealed. So we don't have bathroom bills in place, but there is evidence that folks are finding their experience accessing restrooms to be increasingly concerning. Schools are certainly struggling with how to handle people using the bathroom that fits with their gender identity rather than their assigned sex at birth. We are seeing some states passing protective statutes and ordinances. And so we need to have further examination of how these kinds of bills, whether they're passed or not, are creating stigma within the community and potentially impacting their health outcomes. One of the areas where there's definitely been movement in terms of actual past um, policy here, um, Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, the non-discrimination section that likely many of you are already familiar with. Section 1557 is the non-discrimination piece, but it actually references Title VI, Title IX, Section 504 in, in the way that it defines discrimination. The word sex is what's used here, and so we are seeing a lot of litigation and information around Section 1557 right now as it relates to LGBTQ health. So we have a final rule from 2016 under the Obama administration, which explicitly defined non-discrimination to include transgender individual and sexual orientation. So it did interpret the, the phrase sex to include those groups. Fairly quickly was challenged by Franciscan Alliance in the Northern District of Texas. And at that point, the court issued a nationwide injunction it, December 31st of 2017. So there were only about six, seven months between the rule being issued and the injunction taking place. And so at this point, unless states are determining that they're going to cover sexual gender confirmation surgery or other treatments for transgender individuals, that injunction is in place not requiring that at this time. Fairly shortly after the Franciscan Alliance injunction went into place, the um, administration passed the Minimizing the Economic Burden of the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, which essentially allowed for many waivers and 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 exceptions to be made to the rule. So even without the injunction, those who did not feel that um, providing transgender um, confirming surgeries or, or other uh, related care needed to be covered could likely access waivers through that. After that executive order, the Franciscans Alliance agreed to stop further court proceedings to give the administration time to figure out how they were going to handle Section 1557. And in April 2019, they did, they re reinstated their motion for summary judgment asking for the injunction to become permanent. At that point, the Department of Justice wrote on behalf of Franciscan Alliance that, in fact, the administration did not support the inclusion of transgender services under the um, non-discrimination and said, quote, they would return to the long-standing tradition of sex as its plain meaning, not inclusive of gender identity. And then the following month, they actually did in 
fact, release a new rule interpreting Section 1557 to not cover um, gender identity or termination of pregnancy, which is beyond the scope of where, where I'm looking today, but certainly it's important to know that that's in there. And Tuesday of this week, it appears that the um, Northern District of Texas has, in fact, granted the um, injunction um, coming down the pike. And so not uh, outside of what that rule is saying, but we have more going on. We have the three cases that were argued October 8th in front of the Supreme Court, two of them dealing with sexual orientation and work discrimination, one dealing with people who are transgender and um, workplace discrimination. Certainly the court's interpretation of this may have impact on Section 1557, because if the court finds that in fact sex does include sexual orientation and gender identity, that may impact administrative interpretations to exclude that. So we'll have to see what happens there. I'm going to not go into detail on the Equality Act simply to make you aware that it's there. It's passed the House. It's, of course, sitting in the Senate. And it would explicitly include sexual orientation and gender identity in protected classes for the purposes of discrimination. There have been arguments against it, particularly we're seeing some arguments that is butting up against Title IX. And so where do we go from here? Well, really, I think it's important that we work within the systems where we are to make sure that we're providing culturally competent care for the LGBTQ community. And we can do this through policies within our own organizations. And then also thinking about how we do national policy. Anytime policies are considered and you are part of the decision-making process, I encourage you to think about the impact on mental and physical health of this community. We need to increase data collection efforts. And so if you're a person who has the ability to impact that, I encourage you to think about including the checks boxes for sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, and lastly, I'm going to plug my own research because I would love to talk with folks who are doing similar research in other areas to exchange some ideas. We're working on a project looking at using legal epidemiology to examine laws impacting the LGBTQ community. And we're partnering with an LGBTQ um, data center to use health data to think about how those and examine how those things interplay. As with all social determinants of health issues, it's very difficult to capture all of the different things that are in Involved. We're working with a group at the CDC. We're working with others who are working in stigma. But I would love and welcome any conversations about this to, as we exchange ideas. Thank you. Stacey Tavino serves as the Judge Jack and Lulu Lehman Professor of Law at UNLV William S. Boyd School of Law in Nevada. An elected member of the American Law Institute, Professor Tavino is a leading expert in health law, bioethics, and the medical humanities, with particular expertise in the civil, regulatory, operational, and financial aspects of health law. Professor Tavino founded the UNLV Health Law Program, an academic partnership between the UNLV School of Law and its School of Public Health and served as its first director. In 2019, Professor Tofino received the UNLV Top Tier Award, a university-wide honor that recognizes faculty members who demonstrate excellence in all five areas of UNLV's top-tier mission, including research and external funding, teaching excellence and student achievement, academic health center growth, infrastructure and shared governments, and community partnerships. For a long time, I've been very passionate about trying to make public and private health insurance coverage more inclusive of individuals who have mental health and substance use disorders. And my hope is that as we head in the direction of Medicare for All, Medicare for X, a public option, or some other type of health insurance reform, that we do an even better job than we currently are with respect to that inclusivity. 
because even though we've had 23 straight years of federal mental health parity and federal mental health benefit legislation, including but certainly not limited to the Mental Health Parity Act of 1996, the Paul Wellstone and Pete Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act of 2008, the Affordable Care Act of 2010, and of course the Support Act of 2018, mental health insurance inequities remain, and of course they could get much worse if the entire Affordable Care Act is struck down or if we are not careful when we craft these new federal and or public options. As background, many of you know that historically and even today, public health care programs and private health plans are not really for all, for all of the reasons that we're talking about today, but also because health insurance coverage frequently excludes treatments and services that are needed by individuals with mental health conditions and substance use disorders. In addition, that coverage can be more expensive or more limited. To give you some examples of how that coverage can be more limited or more expensive for individuals with mental health conditions, many health plans impose, of course, lower lifetime and lower annual spending caps on mental health care compared to physical health care, lower numbers of covered inpatient days and covered outpatient visits for mental health care compared to physical health care. Of course, more restrictive financial requirements, including higher deductibles, co-pays, and co-insurance amounts, more stringent medical necessity and prior authorization requirements, and what I call more seemingly applicable investigative or experimental exclusions. Now, you might be thinking, I'm sure we have federal and state laws that prohibit all or most of these mental health insurance benefit disparities. And yes, we have laws that were designed to minimize these disparities, but they are not not what I call perfectly inclusive or perfectly complete laws. First of all, because these laws do not apply to all health plan context, so there are many insureds who don't benefit from the protections that are set forth in these laws. Second, the way these laws were written allows for some wiggle room by health insurers, which they take full advantage of. And third, especially in my state of Nevada, where I receive questions from my faculty and staff colleagues, my students, and my community members from what feels like on a daily basis, many of our in, um, insurance policies in the state of Nevada, um, they simply do not comply with these laws either as written or in terms of insurance company employee communications with insureds. And many insureds, including my very well-educated faculty colleagues, do not have the mental health insurance law expertise to spot examples of non-compliance or to challenge them. Let me just give you a few examples, and in so doing, I hope you will see how we might consider making health insurance coverage more inclusive of individuals with mental health conditions and substance use disorders going forward. Of course, one type of mental health benefit disparity is the exclusion from insurance coverage of all treatments and services that could be classified as mental or psychiatric or emotional or nervous in nature, or the exclusion of particular types of treatments and services frequently needed by individuals with mental health conditions. And just so you can see concrete examples of what these exclusions actually look like if you actually open up a health insurance policy or plan, if you look at the screenshot right here, this is a health plan out of the East Coast, and there were so many behavioral health exclusions that I couldn't even list them all on the slide, so I just took a screenshot of the phrase behavioral health services, and I just took a screenshot of the word exclusions. 
Here's a second narrower example uh, of a health plan that will not cover any treatments and services for individuals with substance use disorder, that will not cover outpatient treatments for individuals with alcohol use disorder, and that will not cover any treatments or services provided to individuals with mental health conditions or substance use disorders when those services are provided in a residential treatment facility. Now, when I show people this, a lot of people say, well, of course, President Obama completely got rid of all this through the Affordable Care Act, especially Section 1302B1, which is our essential health benefits provision. I am very interested in the mental health and substance use disorder essential health benefit. But these provisions do not apply to so many health plan contexts. So as written in the Affordable Care Act in 2010, there were many insureds that didn't benefit from these protections. And of course, a second catch is that remember the regulations implementing these provisions stated that even for those health plans that do have to comply with these provisions, they just have to make their benefits substantially equal to the benefits offered by their state-selected benchmark plans. And of course, if a state-selected benchmark plan has a limitation, then the regulated health plan that is tied to the benchmark plan can have the exclusion or limitation as well. So to show you how this actually plays out, and I'm going to use opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders as examples, just because I bet the opioid crisis is still on everyone's mind, let's just look at a few state benchmark plans and or health plans that are supposedly tied to them and see how they still exclude treatments and services for individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. So this benchmark plan excludes from coverage medication-assisted treatments, including methadone. This benchmark plan excludes from coverage opioid reversal agents, including Narcan. This benchmark plan excludes from coverage mental health services provided in residential treatment facilities. This benchmark plan excludes from coverage all services needed by individuals with substance use disorders. And this benchmark plan right here, as currently written in its iOS, and I'm coming back to it, only because you see that it does not cover any treatments or services for individuals addicted to gambling. And as someone who is a proud resident of Las Vegas, Nevada, where 6% of our residents have addiction to gambling, it's a huge public health problem. This is very frustrating to me. Now, when I show these things, a lot of people, again, say, don't all those federal laws prohibit it? But these federal laws do not protect all insureds, and even when they do, many health insurance policies just completely ignore them. Let me give you some additional examples of the way in which I think health insurance is not really for all or does not perfectly include or is not inclusive of individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. Remember how I said earlier one way in which insurers can kind of still discriminate against individuals with mental health conditions is through lower lifetime spending caps and lower annual spending caps on mental health care compared to physical health care. And when I say this, a lot of people say to me, well, wait a second, 23 years ago, President Clinton signed into law the Mental Health Parity Act of 1996, which prohibited large group health plans from imposing these lower lifetime and annual spending limits. But remember, this law was only limited to large group health plans. Now, the Affordable Care Act did expand it to individual and small group health plans. And you also know that the Affordable Care Act contains separate um, uh, provisions limiting 
mandating or prohibiting annual and lifetime spending limits, but picking on Texas because this is where I went to law school and where I'm still licensed, but our state benchmark plan still imposes a $5,000 annual spending limit and a $10,000 lifetime or overall limit on all inpatient and outpatient services for mental health care. And I can tell you that my annual Starbucks bill is much more than this. There are still other ways in which mental health care is really not for all, and that includes when health insurers impose lower numbers of covered inpatient days and lower numbers of covered outpatient visits on mental health care compared to physical health care. And when I say this, a lot of people say to me, well, didn't President George W. Bush do away with this, with his Paul Wellstone and Pete Domenici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act? And the answer is yes, he did this in the context of large group health plans, and we know that President Obama and his Affordable Care Act expanded this prohibition to individual and small group health plans, but we still have health plans that are regulated health plans that do not comply with these requirements. So, for example, the Mississippi Benchmark Plan imposes a seven-day annual limit on inpatient and outpatient mental health care and a 20-visit annual limit um, on outpatient health care. And the reason this is interesting to me, especially in the context of opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders, is that you know that it can take just that long to obtain, not even mention sustaining, some type of um, detoxification. And of course, detoxification needs to be followed by rehabilitation. A lot of people think, well, that is just the Mississippi benchmark plan. But if you actually are careful and open up our Medicare regulations, you see other types of inpatient day limitations that we don't really see on the physical side and even with President Trump's Support Act. And it's interesting to me that not many people refer to this provision right here as an inpatient day limitation, but that is how I see it. Just to give you one last example of how I think health care right now is really not for all in terms of individuals with mental health and substance use disorders, even post-ACA and post-Support Act, many health plans still impose higher deductibles, higher co-payments, and higher co-insurance amounts on mental health care compared to physical health care. And again, a lot of me people say to me, didn't President George W. Bush prohibit this through MAPEA? But remember, MAPEA only applied to large group health Health plans. Yes, Obama expanded that to individual and small group health plans through the Affordable Care Act, but still many health insurance policies do not comply with this requirement. So, for example, if you actually open up the Alabama benchmark plan, Alabama imposes a 50% coinsurance amount on individuals who are seeking both inpatient and outpatient mental health care. And for those of you who pay for your own health care, you know that 50% coinsurance can add up really quickly and can be cost prohibitive for anyone of low socioeconomic means. Now, a lot of people say to me, well, didn't federal law phase out the 50% coinsurance? And the answer is yes. MIPA did that in 2008 and ending in 2014 for Medicare, but that did not affect state benchmark plans. So remember last Tuesday when Bernie Sanders during the debate said something like, I'm going to get rid of all cost sharing. What I wanted to do was just stop him and say, you mean for individuals with mental health and
substance use disorders too? Or exactly how do you think this will play out? I just hope to have shown you that despite 23 years of what I consider to be federal mental health parity and federal mental health benefit legislation, as well as analogous or parallel movement at the state level that I really haven't had time to go through, I think that we still have relatively significant barriers in terms of access to health care and access to health insurance by individuals with mental health and substance use disorders. And I'm hoping that regardless of whether we go uh, to Medicare for All, Medicare for X, or some other type of public option or other type of health insurance reform, that we can make health insurance for individuals with mental health conditions more inclusive, less expensive, and less restricted or less limited. Thank you so much. Our final speaker was Rakai Yearby, Professor of Law at St. Louis University, a member of SLU's Center for Health Law Studies, co-founder of the Institute for Healing Justice, and the director of the Center for Policy and Equity. At SLU, she teaches healthcare regulation, race, health, and justice. She specializes in racial disparities in healthcare, the political economy of healthcare, and social justice in medical research. Professor Yearby earned her Master of Public Health in Health Policy and Management from John Hopkins School of Public Health, and her law degree from Georgetown University Law Center. After law school, she worked at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services as an assistant regional counsel and served as a law clerk for the Honorable Anne Claire Williams of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. My talk, and I think why I'm here, is because I always focus on long-term care. Everybody ignores it, but it's one of the biggest issues, um, I think, in our health care system. And so I'm going to take you through a little bit of where we have been and hopefully where we will go with uh, some of the Medicare for All programs. This is just a brief history of access to long-term care, particularly institutional care. It has been separated by class and race. And at this point, it still remains separated by class and race. A lot of the legislation that has been passed and acted in the past has really focused on increasing reimbursement uh, to nursing home institutions, um, but that has not provided equal access uh, to long-term care. So I'm going to talk about the market um, a little bit the inequalities that are still there, and a couple of the plans that hopefully will address some of these issues, and then uh, finally the gaps that remain. So when we look at the long-term care market, unlike every other market, I feel, there's not really a market for private insurance. You may hear about private long-term care insurance. It's been around since the 1970s, but it's not working. Before the most recent crisis, there were lots of denials for things that should have been covered, like long-term care. But now you see a lot of the insurers saying, we can't even pay for it. We're going to increase your premiums, and basically we're going to go out of business. So I don't have to wrestle with private insurance because it's not going to be around. And I'm just saying that to you if you were thinking about buying it. You might want to think again. Um, So the ACA actually had a proposal in it that would have increased taxes and provided for long-term care insurance, and it disappeared, unfortunately. So we have this gap that is still there. Medicaid uh, pays for a majority of long-term care facility um, care. Medicare only pays for about 100 days. And why is this important? Well, 
as a system is, as I talked about, it is unequal in terms of care, but what I want to focus on too is it's unequal in terms of wages. We pay below living wages to the people who work in direct care services, which includes people who work in nursing homes, home care, home health care um, workers, and it's not getting better. Home health care workers, 20% uh, are living in poverty compared to 7% of all other occupations. More than half use some type of federal assistance, whether food stamps, Medicaid. And can you imagine actually working for a system in which you can't live, you can't eat, and you can't get health care yourself. Why this is important? Because it is projected that there will be an increase of over a million jobs in this industry, and we're not tying it to increased wages. The long-term care market has a horrible structure currently, right? So when we think about Medicaid, the primary payer of long-term care, there's no real clear model of about how it's funded, and so that's why oftentimes after somebody has died, uh, you lose your house, because we're trying to recoup the cost to pay for other people on Medicaid. Medicare is funded through taxes. Reimbursement, Medicare definitely pays more. I was going to say Medicaid pays below cost, but then we don't really know what the cost is, so let's just say Medicaid does not pay that well. And when you look at some states, they tend to pay late. I know in Illinois, for a while they were paying about six months late, then they had a budgetary crisis, and I don't know how uh, late they were. So, But I wanted to highlight, too, that when we do increase reimbursement, particularly reimbursement sometimes to pay the home health care workers, direct care workers, that often goes to boosting profits and not necessarily to improving patient outcomes or the wages of the workers. In terms of access, there's still remains uh, quite a bit of disparity in access, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit as well. Definitely between whites and African Americans, a level of access, but also in terms of access for those who are poor. Now, I tended to focus on a long-term care institutional care, but we also see lack of access to home and community-based services, even though under Medicaid, states are allowed to pay for these services. In terms of quality, right, it's not just about gaining access to the services. It's that the services will provide support for you to continue to live and to thrive. And research has shown time and time again that that is not what is happening. In fact, a, a 2004 study found that nursing homes that rely on Medicaid tend to be lower tiered. They tend to provide care to mostly minorities, and they tend to provide care that is so horrible that it increases the rate of hospitalization, of pressure sores, of all sorts of harm. How can Medicare for All begin to address all of these issues? Well, several uh, plans call for addressing Medicare and the issues with Medicaid. So the first proposals talk about replacing Medicaid, but lo and behold, they don't mention anything about long-term care, and in fact, they just leave Medicaid in place. That's not really going to work. And so I'm going to focus on the two proposals that focus on long-term care and talk about how they can address some of the problems that I mentioned. The first bill, Mama, which is from two senators, looks at increasing 
increasing the wages uh, for the workforce, right? So that would be great in terms of direct care workers. Um, it also sets uh, minimum staffing standards for nursing homes, and it requires this to be passed within one year of passage. It gradually replaces Medicaid and increases reimbursement rates, right? And so this will be good because it's not only about increasing the rates and hopefully improving quality in nursing home care, but directly tied to the workers having increased uh, wages. Finally, in terms of access, uh, it requires uh, the states to increase access to community and home-based services. Nursing homes, I don't think anybody says, yay, I want to go to a nursing home, right? And so most people would like to stay at home for their care, and this would actually push the states to provide more people access to it. Um, I do want to highlight, but I am not going to go into the financials. I am just going to tell you how some of these plans plan to actually come up with the money. So with this plan, which, which was interesting, is that they had an excise tax on tobacco and alcohol, um, taxes on manufacturers for sugar uh, sweet drinks and increasing the Medicaid, uh, Medicare payroll tax and net investment uh, tax. What I found interesting about that is that it in part it balanced the tax on individuals, right, also with the tax on manufacturers. Oftentimes you see taxes on sugary drinks that are really geared towards individuals versus the manufacturers, but I'm sure it's going to be passed on to us. So as I see some people with Coca-Cola cola and pop, you're going to have to pay more, but the good part about it is you'll be able to keep your house. So, <laughs> let's go on to the next one. So it calls for payments to long-term care providers that reflect the actual cost of care, which is still in a sense problematic because we don't really actually know what the cost of care is. And it doesn't really talk about that, but at least it raises it above what it currently is and ensures equitable wages for employees. Uh, that language is good. I would have loved living wages because equitable just seems to me to say, hmm, that means you're going to increase their pay by one it's at $5 right now. That's still not a living wage. It does go to replacing Medicaid uh, immediately and factors in efforts to decrease health disparities. Uh, but the focus on health disparities, like so much of current uh, federal regulation and uh, most recent bills, really focuses on collecting data and the assessment of data. And I have to tell you, as a person who has been studying this for let's say a decade, um, <laughs> that we have enough data. I can give you lots of data. I could give you a day full of data about how there are lots of healthcare disparities in long-term care. We don't need more data. It prioritizes the delivery of long-term care services through home and community-based services, and it will be paid through the Medicare Trust Fund. So what are some gaps that are not going to be filled by the current Medicare for all bills? One is it's still not going to totally change the structure um, and address those problems along with wage issues. Direct care workers not only don't get paid that much, but their hours are inconsistent. And so that means that many times they do not get full 
full-time work, which means they don't get full-time benefits. And that is not necessarily addressed by the, any of the current bills. As I said, equitable wages does not necessarily mean living wages to me, and it's not fleshed out in the law. We need to enforce worker protections because another issue is a lot of times with wage theft. For home health care workers, as they're driving back and forth, that time is not counted. And sometimes they don't actually get paid uh, overtime and things that they should get paid. There are no health benefits. And as we shift, thankfully, to home and community-based services and care, we never think about how that's going to actually impact the family. Because if you're in a nursing home, your care is taken care of. If you're at home, the direct care service worker is just coming in for an hour, at most two hours. So who else is supposed to be there? That's you and me. They're not talking about how that's going to shift the benefit and lessen our ability to go to work and do other things. So a major oversight. Also in terms of access to care and quality care, we assume that everybody lives in a house or in a neighborhood that will allow them to gain access to these services, and that is not true. Lots of people live in areas or in places that are not uh, accessible or um, built for them to stay at home when they have issues. And so we need to think about that and how that is impacted by continuing racial housing segregation. We also need to tie increased uh, provider reimbursement or increased rates to quality care for racial minorities and the poor. Just gaining access, as I mentioned, does not mean that you're going to get the same level of care. Racial minorities and uh, the poor receive lower level of care regardless of what type of insurance they have, if they have insurance, because there is still discrimination. And so just giving them access to home and community-based services is not going to ensure that they get the same services as everybody else, particularly because we do not apply discrimination law to healthcare providers, so they can discriminate as much as they want to, which is probably why there's lots of articles by physicians saying I'm a racially profiling doctor. We need to address that. We also need to actually link discrimination investigations to how we survey care and increase fines for it. So in conclusion, I do think Medicare for All can increase access to care for elderly patients, but we have to think broadly about how to do that. We need to think about the workers that are working in this industry, and we need to think about if we are going to shift to home and community-based services, how that's going to impact family members and how that's going to impact people who do not have the same access to care or the same living situations as everybody else. So thank you. And that was the week in health law. My thanks to Director Keys and Professors Tavino, McCabe, and Yearby. Uh, you can find Professor Tavino on Twitter as at Tavino underscore Stacy. Heather McCabe is at Professor McCabe. And uh, Professor Yibby is at Rakaya. Show notes are at tour.com. I am Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legal interesting but healthy week. <laughs> <laughs>